0: Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. For those of us who believe in and who seek a relationship with God, especially as God is spoken of in Jewish and Christian scripture, tradition, and experience, we learn that God is a demanding God. God requires of us, and thus we are compelled toward certain beliefs and behaviors, actions that often are at odds and in contrast, to our desires and interests. to be in a relationship with God, we are required and compelled to do God's will. Primary in doing God's will is we are to be like God and thus to do as God does. This is conviction shared by Jews and Christians together. as God has done for us in our need, we are to do for others in their need. We do this not grudgingly or fearfully, but willingly because of who God is. God is love and full of mercy. So we hear God speak to Israel in Deuteronomy 10:17 through 19, saying, The Lord your God loves strangers. You shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt and the apostle paul says in 2 corinthians 5:18 all of this is from god who reconciled us to himself through christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation but christians have a second or additional compulsion that jesus states in matthew 25 that is that we are to see jesus in others even in those whom we doubt that Jesus is not in. Those in a sinful state that we perceive often suffering from that sinful state sickness, imprisonment, hunger. Tragically and ironically, our own sinfulness in the very act of seeking to obey God leads us to behaviors that contradict the two motives I just mentioned of being like God and seeing Jesus and others one way arises out of fear. In our efforts to put aside our own sin, we fear association with others, worse sinners, who will somehow cause us to weaken, who will influence us, taint us, and cause us to fail. So we avoid them. And closely connected with that is often a self-important or self-righteous conviction of superiority that those suffering are doing so out of the justified punishment for their sin. Our experience with living with those with HIV and AIDS puts us in the context of all four of those behaviors. On the one hand, we are called to show these people compassion as God has shown us compassion and to see Jesus in them. On the other hand, we fear and we avoid them, thinking that they will somehow taint us. And we presume that they have this because they are somehow being punished for sin. To speak to us more fully and clearly about HIV and AIDS and ministry to those who have it. I am turning to Wayne Smith. Wayne was an elementary school teacher and an elementary school principal, but as a ministry leader, began Samaritan ministry out of Central Baptist Bearden in Knoxville, Tennessee. So Wayne, thank you for being with me today.
1: And thank you for
0: telling us about this ministry. So let's begin by letting you kind of tell your own spiritual journey okay. and how that spiritual journey led you into being interested in this particular ministry. And then we'll talk more fully about the ministry itself.
1: Sounds good. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning and uh, to to talk a little bit about the work that we do and that, that I love so much. Uh, back in the um, early 90s, a rather well-known baptist leader named dr jimmy allen wrote a book called burden of a secret which was the story of his family's encounter with hiv aids uh, in texas Um, he found out in the in the uh, late 80s that one of his sons was gay and had hiv and his other sons wife was infected from a bad blood transfusion and two of her children his two grandsons were also uh, infected with hiv so in the late 80s there was nothing to do except wait for hiv to turn into aids and then for death to come along and dr allen was pastor of a large baptist church in uh, san antonio and uh, had, had took his burden uh, to his congregation and that didn't go so well for him and his family Uh, to make a very long story kind of short they they just um, basically ran him and his family out of town his son who was married uh, to um, the woman who was infected from a blood transfusion was pastor of a small church he also was run out of town and Uh, This story, Burden of a Secret, is about uh, the Allen family's um, journey through uh, stigma and discrimination at the hands of Christians. And one of the ministers at our church read Jimmy's book in the early 90s and decided we should get some people together and learn a little bit about about HIV because his question to us was, what are we going to do at Central Bearden? If a family walks into our church and wants their children to attend Sunday school, oh, but they have HIV. Or what about a young woman who would come in and want to be a a part of our fellowship, and and yet she's living with HIV? So we began a, a journey to study, a group of us. I was invited to be a part of that group because I was an educator. We had some medical people and some educators in that group. The idea being we're going to find out about HIV and then we're going to teach it to everybody else. And that was a 1996 project for us to do, or 95, I guess. And in February of 96, we had a church-wide uh, educational program in all of our Sunday school classes. And our pastor at the time, Dr. Larry Fields, preached a sermon on compassion and HIV. And those of us that worked on this uh, committee as we do in Baptist life. We all patted ourselves on the back. We had done a good job, we were done. We'd worked long hours preparing for this day and we were ready to go back to our day jobs and and put this behind us. Well, that's not what uh, God had in mind for me. Uh, In the process of preparing and learning about HIV, I had met people who were living with HIV. I'd gone to trainings and I had been up close and personal with people who were in the hospital, who were dying, and I began to learn about stigma, discrimination, and a very, very interesting thing about the perceptions, much of it born out of reality, but the perceptions that many people living with HIV have about the church and about Christians, and maybe even especially about Baptist Christians. Unfortunately, I'll give you an example. Um, I attended a training at the Knotts County Health Department one morning on HIV. It was a, a training for professional folks in the community, people who worked in jobs related to HIV. And I asked if I could attend. And I was a few minutes late. And the young woman who was presenting the program for the day saw me come in the back of the auditorium and she out loud said, oh, there's Wayne Smith from Central Baptist Church of Bearden. And everybody, the, the room broke into thunderous applause. I didn't understand. I, uh, I didn't know what I'd done wrong. I didn't know if there was a joke that I missed. I went and sat down and tried to disappear into my chair. And um, after the meeting was over, a young woman came up to me sobbing and put her arms around my neck and or an older woman, excuse me, uh, put her hands around my neck and sobbed. And she said, thank you for coming. We've been waiting 30 years for the church to come. That, that's why they clapped. Wow. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about Central Bearden. It was about the church showing up. Somebody representing Jesus Christ coming into the room and being willing to be a part of the talk and the discussion. So that's really the those experiences and experiences like that. Some bedside experiences and others really formed this uh, idea for me and others, volunteers, my wife, my family, uh, that there was really something there that the church was missing that we maybe just had an opportunity to do something about.
0: Well, let's kind of begin from scratch in the sense of saying, because even though the terms have been around now a long time,
1: yes, uh,
0: it's been around long enough that people have gone fuzzy and, and vague on our understanding. Uh, so what is HIV and AIDS? Uh, what's the difference? Uh, how do you get it? What do we need to know about it? Okay. Uh, so kind of go those, through all that for us.
1: Those are great questions. Well, a lot has changed in the in the time from the 80s to today. So we need to talk about that and, and explore that some as we talk today. But um, HIV is a virus, human immunodeficiency virus. It's a virus that attacks a person's immune system. Uh, this virus is um, contract. You get this virus from another person, another human being. Can't get it from a animal or from a um, uh, from a surface or anything like that. You have to have uh, blood, blood or sexual contact with another person in order to become infected with HIV. HIV, if left untreated, and that's a real critical thing here. HIV, if left untreated, will uh, break down a person's immune system and um, if without an immune system, we're unable to fight disease. So a person becomes immune compromised. The term AIDS is, a, is an antiquated term. We need to talk about that too. The term AIDS is, is a term that was developed many, many years ago to describe the condition, of a, the condition of a broken immune system. So a person with HIV gets sicker and sicker. Their immune system... Uh, becomes unable to function. The white blood cells that kind of operate part of our immune system are killed off by the virus, and a person can't uh, can't defend themselves against illness. And so, AIDS is a condition of a broken immune system. There are numbers that scientists use, medical people use to describe when a person has AIDS and when a person doesn't have AIDS. But all of that has changed in the face of new treatments. So um, so in the old days, like what I talked about with Dr. Allen and his family, you got HIV. there were no treatments, so the virus progressed uh, to a point where a person the immune system was was wrecked, and that's the condition of AIDS. And when you have AIDS, you're living with a broken immune system. And for most people, it's just a matter of time before a, a really good bout of the flu or pneumonia or... Um, some other opportunistic infection they call them uh, makes you so sick you can't you can't survive it, and then death comes usually not from HIV but from one of those op- something else that gets an opportunity to make you sick because of your uh, your immune system being compromised. So that's kind of the, the 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 background and the basis of HIV and AIDS. Now today we have really terrific treatments for for HIV, and these are, these are oral medications that people take uh, daily. And the oral medications uh, uh, work to prevent HIV from being able to multiply inside your body, in your bloodstream. And these medications aren't able to eradicate HIV, but they're very effective in keeping HIV from growing and maturing and multiplying in a person's body so much so that a person taking treatments today can live a full lifespan of about the same quality and length as a person without HIV without ever having the fear of getting AIDS. Okay. So big change and that's been slow and incremental over a period of years. Uh, But today, we 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 don't talk about the term AIDS very much. Many people, even somebody who's diagnosed and they already have a compromised immune system, can rebound, uh, gain, regain the health of their immune system because of medication and treatment, and they wouldn't have that, that state of a broken immune system anymore. So a lot of people are not even using the term AIDS anymore. We're talking more about HIV infection. And a person who is very sick would have advanced HIV, kind of the same way we talk about stage four cancer. We know that if a person has stage four cancer, they have cancer that has progressed, probably metastasized, and that's serious. And so advanced HIV disease or stage four HIV would be a very similar way of talking about uh, HIV without using the term AIDS at
0: all. Okay. Well, yeah, that's very helpful. So, you know, is that making people less concerned about the disease and consequently less safe?
1: Well, there's a lot of discussion about that. Um, we we have not we've not done a very good job in this country and around the world in reducing the number of new infections that occur annually.
0: What are those, by the way?
1: Today, about 35,000 a year, new infections.
0: uh, Worldwide? That's that's U.S. Oh, the United States, okay.
1: U.S. And that number has decreased some uh, from around 50,000 a few years ago, but it really has not uh, come down uh, to the degree that we would like it to, and that continues to be a concern. So there's still plenty of new infections. The good news is the death rate is way down. People are not dying uh, like they like they used to. The challenge is getting people tested so they know whether or not they have HIV, and then getting people who have HIV uh, connected to medical care and on these life-saving medications. Um, so those are those are, those are sort of the paths that we need to get people to be on to get them to a place where they can live a healthy life and live with HIV.
0: You have a very excellent website, uh, SamaritanCentral.org. Is that right? Yes, thank you. Um, and on that, uh, I was surprised to read uh, kind of who has AIDS uh, that you talked about that it being. Uh, predominantly a Southern thing and, and even a Southern female thing, uh, kind of talk with us more a little bit about that and, uh, kind of the statistics relating to that.
1: Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting watching the progression of HIV over the years. Uh, there are, there are a couple of really good websites. One is called, uh, AIDSview, AIDS uh, tracks, uh, HIV, infections and AIDS cases around the country by county, actually. Uh, It's quite a database. And you can see when you look at AIDS cases and AIDS rates across the country that the South is really uh, hit hard uh, by this epidemic. There have been articles in, in some of the really excellent HIV magazines over the last seven or eight years, referring to HIV as a southern epidemic.
0: And what do you think that is?
1: Well, there are a lot of factors there. That's, that's one of the things that when I lecture and talk to people, we talk about why, why this would be. And there are a lot of factors. Poverty would be one of the leading factors. There's a lot of poverty in the South. We, we see always across the world disease and poverty are very good friends and so that that's a, that's a factor um, lack of access to health care is a, is a huge factor in the south most of the states that have that have not expanded medicare as part of uh, the affordable care act most of them are southern states and so there's a direct correlation between political interest in not expanding Medicare and higher cases of HIV, uh, higher case rates of HIV due to lack of access to care. Also in the South, we have um, evangelical Christian um, communities that dig in against things like uh, comprehensive uh, sex education in our public schools so in many states including the state where i live in tennessee we have laws on the books that restrict how public school educators can talk about sex and some of those laws are so restrictive and uh, actually provide for um pretty pretty significant punishment for educators who violate those rules that it pushes many of our school systems and our educators away to even even broach the subject of sex and sexuality. And in many states, uh, we're only allowed to talk about abstinence as a preventative measure for something like a sexually transmitted disease, which by and large HIV is. And so um, that also leads to a failure of our systems to address uh, risk, um, condom use, what we call in the, in the in the health education business, harm reduction, which is teaching people how to reduce their risk, uh, even if they are going to or plan to be sexually active, what can people do to reduce their risk of getting something like HIV? So uh, I would say all of those factors together combine to create this storm uh, in the South. Now you mentioned women, so let's talk about a little bit about who gets HIV and this also impacts the South. African Americans are much more, as a group, are impacted by higher percentages impacted with HIV than are their white or Hispanic counterparts. And, and the statistics around this are pretty dramatic. If you look at a state like Tennessee with, I think, about a 13 to 15% uh, African-American population, I, and I, I don't want to quote this stat and be wrong, but over 50% of the people in Tennessee that have HIV are African-American. So uh, there's there's disproportionate impacts on Black and brown communities around HIV. and There are so many factors involved in that mistrust of our healthcare system by African-Americans. I can't tell you how many times in, uh, in talks and lectures that I do, usually an elderly black man will say something to me about Tuskegee and Tuskegee and the Tuskegee experiments and why should I trust the healthcare system? These are old wounds. And, you know, in, in today's environment uh, with COVID-19, we're, we're still hearing all this talk about the impact of, of that virus on the African-American community and why that is. So we see that, but still, uh, gay and bisexual men still lead the list in who is impacted most by HIV. So it's not just gay and bisexual men that are impacted but that is a group that is continues to be impacted by hiv and that's that's something that really has continued to be at the heart of this epidemic uh, historically and and still and still is so today
0: okay well and what are the i guess the misconceptions uh that you uh need to address and want us to know about
1: let's talk about some scientific ones and then some spiritual ones how about that okay so one of the things that i wrote down you gave me this great list of questions and one of the things i wrote down under misconceptions was the 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 concept that it's not aids anymore um And so we need to remove that from our vernacular. When we're talking about this disease, we need to talk about HIV that comes with much less stigma that term than AIDS. Okay. Uh, AIDS means death. HIV disease is a different way of talking about this. It's a very important concept concept. When I talk to nurses about how to talk with patients about, about HIV, Uh, Many organizations have made some significant efforts to even remove HIV from the name of the, I mean, to remove AIDS from the name of the organization, because many of our historical uh, not-for-profits and government agencies that were created to deal with this disease have AIDS in the name of the organization. A really good example of that is the government website for HIV information is aids.gov. Well, it's not aids.gov anymore. It's hiv.gov. So I think one of the things we need to talk about in, in it all is that we need to we need to lose AIDS and talk c- continue to talk about HIV and HIV disease. Um, I mentioned that gay and bisexual men still pay, play a big role in the group. The percentage of New infections, and that continues to be the case. But one of the misconceptions is that this is a gay disease. You don't get HIV because you're gay. This is a sexually transmitted disease that anybody can get if they have sex with somebody who has HIV, or if they share needles. Those are the two big things: sex and needles that deal with transmission of this virus. So. Um, Anybody can be at risk, and, and among the client base that we work with here in the Knoxville area, many of our clients are women, men, gay, straight, old. Uh, I've got 70-year-old clients, 75-year-old clients, and 20-year-old clients. Um, black and white and brown. It covers the it covers the gamut, and the common thing for all those people is they they had a uh, uh, sexual experience with someone who had uh, this disease and got infected, or and this is a this is a much smaller percentage, or they shared needles in um, in misusing uh, drugs with someone who had a, uh, an HIV infection. So um, anybody can be at risk. One of the big misconceptions is that HIV can hide. Uh, for years and you you wouldn't know you wouldn't know you have it and there's some truth in that but HIV can't hide from an HIV test for more than about 30 days because it takes a little while for a person to develop enough antibodies to make the test work so uh, getting an HIV test is a very effective means of knowing your status and HIV can't hide from a test. And this is critical for people to find out if they have HIV because for most people getting an HIV infection is symptom free. Uh, This is not like other sexually transmitted diseases. There's no rash or drip or any of those kind of sores or anything like that that sometimes we think of with sexually transmitted infections. Uh, We don't see those with HIV. So people get infected and most of the time, they don't know they've been infected.
0: Well, because you mentioned in, in Jimmy Allen's book that his grandchildren uh, were infected. So, you know, a, a child can be infected by the mother.
1: Yes, that's right, David. And so um, in in uh, uh, children can get HIV from their mother if the mother has HIV. They can't, a person cannot get HIV from their father because HIV is not um, connected to the sperm that fertilizes the egg. It's in the fluid. So, what happens is a a man who has HIV will give it to the woman that he has sex with. And then, if the woman gets HIV from that partner, then she can give it to her child. Uh, However, We have learned over the years, one of the biggest breakthroughs that we've had in HIV um, is that um, if a woman has uh, HIV and is on a treatment for her HIV, she will not deliver an HIV positive child. Um, And we have very few HIV infections of children in the United States anymore because of this. Um, There are a few, but they're rare. And so we know how to prevent that from happening. Um, the medications are very effective in preventing transmission from mother to child. So there really is no reason for any children to be born with HIV today. Now, Jimmy Allen's uh, daughter-in-law was infected because that was before the treatments were uh, developed and available and before uh, there was knowledge about how to prevent that from happening.
0: Well, you talked about spiritual misconceptions. Let's kind of move to that one. You mentioned a little bit of it in your intro—the idea that um,
1: God punishes people for their sin by inflicting them with pain and suffering. That's not something I've ever believed. I think Jesus speaks pretty harshly about that in the in the Bible, and um, so I've never I've never been one that. Uh, that accepted that as a theological truth. I hear people say, you know, let's love the uh, love the sin or hate the sin, which is one of my least favorite statements of faith, because I think that insinuates, when it's spoken, that um, somehow a person with HIV is deserving of this virus because of the sin. A sin, thus sin, that they have um, that they've engaged in. Um, the elephant in the room around this always is homosexuality. So if you if you accept the premise that homosexual activity between um, consenting adults is sinful, then um, okay, do they deserve to get HIV, and is it because of their sinful act? That they're getting hiv so if that's so then what about what about women who get hiv from a male partner what about children who get hiv from their mom you know um what about people who inject drugs and and get hiv is that as big a sin you know let's you know are we going to rank them and figure out which one is which um all people are god's children The God that I love and worship is a God of love and grace who cares about all of his children and wants all of them to be healthy, all of them to make good decisions, all of them to work to be closer to him. Um, We all fall short. We all do. In big ways and small ways. And um, uh, I just think that that misconception about who gets HIV still permeates uh, many within the, many Christians. One of the things that, that I was asked one time what, at, a, at, a, at a Christian meeting, a, a Cooperative Baptist Fellowship meeting, I was on a panel, and I was asked what what keeps me awake at night about thinking about HIV, what keeps me awake at night. And what keeps me awake at night is thinking about my Christian brothers and sisters who are gay and lesbian and who are not able, because of prejudice and bias, are not able to fully take part in the life of the church. They don't want to go to the the gay church. They want to go to their church. And worship, and uh, that's what keeps me awake at night. And so, from a theological standpoint, in my opinion, that's one of the big misconceptions. And I would recommend to your listeners, if they would like to learn more about uh, uh, learn more about all this, David Gushy's book "Changing Our Mind," and um, Jim Dance' uh, small uh, missile that he put together. Gee, I can't think of the name of the little book. It's uh, Jim Dan is pastor of uh, First Baptist Church in Greenville, South Carolina. And he's written a great little book about, about uh, gay Christians.
0: Well, if you want to uh, research that and send it to me, I can put it on my blog spot.
1: Well, I'll do it.
0: Well, let's then talk about Samaritan ministry. Okay. What do y'all do? <laughs>
1: Well, in in the COVID 19 day and time, it's really been difficult to do our job and our work. I will have to say that. But um, the the life for Samaritan ministry generally uh, revolves around a couple of things. Uh, One is to um, take care of and look after people who live in our community in the greater Knoxville area who are living with HIV. And that means loving them, uh, making them a part of our uh, community, creating a community for them where they're loved and appreciated and valued, Um, creating a, a, a place that they can go that happens to be called a Baptist church where they're treated with love and respect. It's about making sure that they get to access health care and access what they need in terms of social services, food, shelter, um, those things. Providing groups for support groups for people to come together and talk and learn from each other about HIV. Um, that's important. Uh, we do uh, also a lot of teaching uh, out in the community, in jails, in prisons, and um, halfway houses with uh, formerly incarcerated and incarcerated people, homeless, um, people in recovery from alcohol and drug misuse. Nurses. We have a a really good uh, relationship with several of the training facilities for nurses in the area, colleges and universities, and provide uh, training about HIV to those, to those folks. And, um, so so uh, working with people directly that have HIV and then teaching people about HIV. And the other arm, I guess, if, would be testing. Uh, we do a lot of uh, HIV and hepatitis C testing to help people understand their status and then get people linked, linked to care.
0: Well, you'd have like specific printed materials or those kind of things that people have access to?
1: We do. Uh, we don't do a, we don't do a lot of printed material, not as much as we used to, because people are becoming so accustomed to accessing those kind of things electronically. But as you mentioned, our website is full of materials that we've created uh, to help people understand the disease, to help people understand the relationship between the church and uh, the HIV community and how to become engaged uh, there Um, we do when we go to conferences we usually go to two large conferences a year Uh, COVID-19 has impacted that we have a presence at the National Cooperative Baptist Fellowship assembly every year Um, and then we go to the largest domestic uh, HIV AIDS conference which is called the U.S. Conference on HIV AIDS We go to that every year and we do a booth and distribute materials. And um, we've been doing that conference for about 20 years. And when we go to this conference and set up our booth, uh, with the exception of one or two years, we are almost always the only Christian group in this huge exhibit hall. Uh, And we get a lot of attention. Mm. That's one of our... One of our big activities. I don't think we're going to get to do that this this year because of because of COVID, but we'll certainly be be there in in force uh, at the earliest opportunity. So that's a that's kind of a, a quick list um, of things that we that we do. Um, we help a lot of people with prescription drug access and utility bill and rent assistance through some grant programs that we have um, most people or actually all people that have hiv have access to uh, medications that are that are almost free but sometimes even a smallest copay can be a barrier for people who are poor and have serious economic problems so uh, even a three dollar copay can be a challenge
0: you had talked about uh, Don Messer's book yeah. providing you some guiding principles and uh, some things that you do. Uh, what are those? What's the book and what are those?
1: Um, Don Messer is a, a theologian, a Methodist theologian. He was the uh, president of iliff School of Theology, which is in uh, Colorado, in Denver, I think. I'm not sure it's in Denver, but it's in Colorado. And, um, he has been working in the international um, AIDS world for his whole adult life, and has written extensively about the AIDS epidemic overseas. Uh, and his book, Breaking the Breaking the Conspiracy of Silence, deals with the what he what he calls the conspiracy of silence around uh, the truth about HIV in the Christian Church around the world, and. Uh, when he, when he wrote his book in the late 90s, I picked it up by accident. You know how accidents are, right, with the Holy Spirit. I picked the book up by accident at a, at a conference, and I was stunned to read his book um, because he described in the book, really, for, for me and for our church and Samaritan ministry, what HIV/AIDS ministry needed to look like. And why we did what we did, we were we were we were on a path that we liked and we thought made sense. But Don put it all in perspective for us. When I read his book, I thought, "This is why we do what we do, and this is how we do what we do." And he he delineates um, five points in his in his book that really describe what HIV ministry needs to look like. Uh, the first one is that we we're we're responsible responsible for challenging the negative and judgmental attitudes that people have around HIV/AIDS. The people have toward people who live or who live with HIV/AIDS. That's number one. As Christians, we need to stand up and challenge those negative attitudes. The second point is to increase knowledge and understanding around HIV and challenge fears and misconceptions, and teach science. You will notice on our website, David, that we talk a lot about science. HIV is a disease. It's not a moral failure. HIV is a virus. It's not a sin. We need to approach and attack HIV from a public health standpoint, using uh, the knowledge that our scientists and health officials have given us to reduce new infections and stop the spread of disease and quit all of the quit letting our our biases and our judgments about other people get in the way of those kinds of kinds of decisions along with that just provide people with accurate information the other point is to give practical and, and pastoral support to people who are living with hiv aids People who are living with HIV/AIDS need pastoral support. They, you know, we live in the Bible Belt, and almost all the people that I know that have HIV grew up in the church. Whether they practice that today or not, um, they grew up going to church. They know about Jesus Christ and they know a lot about what the Bible says. It's pretty remarkable. We would think in our misconception that people that have HIV don't know Jesus and don't know about the Bible. What I have found is that they need connection and reconnection to that Jesus that they once were close to, that they once knew they need to be told over and over again, that God loves them over and over again, that Jesus Christ cares about what happens to them over and over again, that God has never rejected them and walked away from them. Maybe the church has, maybe a pastor has, maybe Christians have, but not God, not Christ. And so people need us. People who are living with HIV and AIDS need a loving, welcoming uh, uh, pastoral community to help them make it through the trials and tribulations of life, that that those of us who are believers uh, and have access to that, we know what that means and how much that's needed. We need to provide that for our HIV community. And then last and certainly not least on this list is to engage in the community uh, with other churches, other faith um, traditions and Especially with the secular community, we well, use the phrase prayer dialogue. What, what is that? Well, prayerful dialogue. That means that as a Christian, we're, you know, we're a Christian organization. We're we're a part of a local Baptist church here in in Knoxville. So, can we have dialogue with a not-for-profit agency that's not faith-based? Can we? Um, Can we figure out how to uh, relate and work with a local hospital that's not a faith-based organization? Can we team up with groups like um, Planned Parenthood, you know, uh, completely secular organizations? The health department is not a faith-based organization. Can we team up with the health department to do the work that needs to be done to reduce HIV infections in our community are we willing prayerfully to consider how we can have those partnerships and work together alongside um, those organizations and I think Don Messer's answer is we must because uh, if we look at public health and the challenges of public health who does public health in the United States of America it's the health department the uh, The Department of Health in D.C., the State Department of Health in Tennessee, and the local health departments all around our our country, these are the organizations doing public health work. And you know what? They need us. They need us to help them. They need us to stand with them. They need faith communities to stand beside them when they're going to the state legislature uh, to promote Um, legislation to help people with HIV AIDS, to reduce stigma, to look at uh, changing laws that discriminate against people with HIV. They they love having a big Baptist church in a major city in Tennessee standing with them when they make those presentations. Uh, It's important that we do that. One of the things that has occurred to me I I, I didn't come up with this. I learned this from a friend is that so often in the, in the, in the Christian community, we operate under, a under, under the, um, the premise that we, we have to circle our wagons and figure out how we're alike before we can decide to work together. So, uh, we have to have the same belief system. We have to, uh, we have religious tests and litmus tests about, okay, you have to have this belief system. If, you're, if, we're, if we can play together, if we can work with you, Then then we have to agree on these biblical principles that make us common. And if we do that, then we exclude a lot of people who are important members of our community that don't fit into that circle. The opposite of that, and, and that that's because we're asking the wrong question. The question we're, we're asking in that model is, do you believe what I believe? And that's the wrong question. The correct question is, do you care about what I care about? So if we ask that question about HIV AIDS, then There are many players in the community, faith community, uh, Christian, non-Christian, and and secular who would say, yes, we care about uh, people who have HIV. We would like to let everybody find out their status, whether they have HIV or not, and help them get connected to life-saving medical care. Yes, we care about what you care about. So let's hold hands and see what we can do together. And that's really one of Don's major points. And I think when I say we do that prayerfully, what I mean is that uh, it's important to me that I'm true to my values. It's important to me that that I can defend uh, my partnership with the Knott's County Health Department. I have been hired on a side job to, to be the trainer for hepatitis C for the Tennessee Department of Health training organizations, how to do HIV, excuse me, how to do hepatitis C testing. I'm the trainer. So they have stepped out of their comfort zone to hire a a guy from the local Baptist church to do hep C training because they think I'm qualified to do that based on what they've seen. So, my, my point on this is, isn't it great to be able to have that partnership between Samaritan ministry and a department of health to promote science and truth uh, about drug addiction and hepatitis C and needle use and needle misuse and those kind of things? Um, we just must our wings into the community because the community needs us so much. And I know I've gone on too long about that, uh, David, but I just think that's such an important thing that that all too often we miss.
0: Well, you, you began to touch on a little bit that um, you've expanded the ministry beyond HIV to hepatitis C and uh, opioid uh, addiction. Kind of talk a little bit about that. In
1: 2015, in Indiana, in a small rural county in, in, in Indiana, Scott County, uh, there was an outbreak of HIV, a very serious outbreak of HIV. Small county that would be similar. You're in, you're in North Carolina, right? Yes. So if you would, if you would picture some of the most rural counties in North Carolina, and there are plenty of them. Um, This Scott County, Indiana is one of those very rural counties with a low population, uh, mostly white, um, high unemployment, very few towns of any size. uh, Historically, a very, very serious problem with opioid use and misuse and injection drug use. Not uncommon in rural America at all. So, in 2015, on top of what was going on there with hepatitis C and and opioid misuse and overdose deaths, there was an HIV outbreak, a very serious one, uh, over 250 HIV infections in this little bitty county in about an 18 month period 2015 into 2016. And when the um, local and state health departments went in to take a look at what had happened they were able to determine that almost all but just a handful of the of the HIV infections came from one person who had moved into Scott County who had HIV and was also an injection drug user and shared needles with a small group of people and then that group shared needles with another small group of people and uh, bang, 250 new HIV infections.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah, wow. So when the, when the uh, CDC started looking at this event and what had happened, one of the things they did that was pretty smart was they took a look at um, what is it about Scott County, Indiana, that made Scott County, Indiana vulnerable to this, and what other counties in the United States are also like vulnerable based on the same demographics. And they came up with 220 counties in in the United States that were vulnerable to HIV outbreak in the same way that Scott County was. Mostly white, rural, lots of injection drug use, high unemployment, mostly small towns, no big cities, this kind of thing. And the list they came up with, 220 counties in the United States tracks right up through North Georgia, East Tennessee, Eastern Kentucky, West Virginia, right up the Appalachian Mountain Range, including some counties in North Carolina, by the way.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, I can see that. You can see that. Yeah. And so... This study, this vulnerability study, really uh, highlighted a scary relationship between the opioid epidemic, hepatitis C outbreak related to needle use and HIV outbreaks and potential for HIV outbreaks. And so it occurred to us at Samaritan Ministry that we needed to pay attention to this and we started asking a couple of questions. One was, we do we were doing and still do a lot of HIV testing. So, is there could we also do hepatitis C testing in those same sort of um, in the same uh, places? So it just so happens that there are rapid HIV tests that can be done by community-based organizations out in the community. They are very they are very effective accurate. A rapid test means you get results in about somewhere between five minutes and 20 minutes. There are several tests on the market that do that. But there's also a rapid hepatitis C test. So now when we go out into the community, we can test for both and begin to talk to people uh, about the dangers of injection drug use and maybe connect people to uh, treatment and care And then the other big development that's happened, I don't know about North Carolina, but it's easy to find this out. Tennessee, about two years ago, uh, made uh, needle exchange legal in Tennessee. So we now have needle exchange programs, syringe exchange programs, in the big cities around state so that people can uh, take their dirty needles, and turn them in so they're not a danger out in the community uh, and obtain clean uh, syringes and other uh, injection supplies to reduce the spread of disease now this is controversial because uh, would you give if you give clean needles then are you encouraging people to continue to use drugs and the facts the science around this says the opposite, that if people have access to clean needles, it reduces the spread of disease, it causes people to think more clearly about the risks that they're taking, it causes people to think more clearly about putting other people in danger, and it connects people with caring individuals at the site where they go to exchange syringes, uh, people who can help them access treatment and recovery programs when they're ready to do that. And it also puts them in touch with people that care about them and treat them with respect, um, like human beings, not throw away people. Another example of some of those that Jesus maybe would think about when he was talking about the stranger and, and who we might not want to be around because of their behaviors, uh, the injection drug community is one of those communities we never see anybody carrying a billboard, let's stand up for the injection drug use community. So these are our neighbors, our children, our friends, our co-workers that need our love and support because they're, they're living with an illness, addictions and illness. It is not a moral failure. So those are interesting connections that we've made expanding our base a little bit, um, staying true to our, our core value of of helping people understand and live with and get access to care. Um, but we have, we have expanded into those, into those areas.
0: Well, this has been an exceptionally helpful and important insight and, uh, thank you for your ministry. Uh, thank you for the quality of work that you're doing. I appreciate you being with me today.
1: You bet. David, there's there's one other topic that I would like to cover, uh, whether you can use it or not. I'll
0: I sure. go
1: back and edit, but if you've got a few more minutes yeah, share. Um, in HIV research, one of the things that has uh, occurred in the last couple of years are, are two really big breakthroughs in HIV that need to be mentioned uh, today. One of them is that we have learned because of great scientific research and study that if a person is taking their HIV medications like they're supposed to, taking them daily, not missing doses, seeing the doctor routinely like, like is necessary, that they can get their HIV under control and get the amount of HIV in their body down to a pretty low level. And what research has taught us is that if a person does that and sustains that, it is impossible for them to infect somebody else with HIV, even if they have sexual encounter without using condoms. They cannot infect another person sexually. Okay, it's a big breakthrough. Yeah, um, and so that's that's a, that's true new science that people need to understand that for the HIV community, if you take your medicine, then you cannot it it and and do it right, then you you no longer are going to be able to spread HIV sexually. Okay. Okay. Good.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So the other big piece of research that's happened is there are medications out on the market. There's two medications out on the market that people can take daily to prevent getting an HIV infection. Oh, okay. This is called PrEP. That's a, an acronym, pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. And if a person takes these, these pills every day, uh, it's a one pill once a day, every day it will reduce the chance that they could become infected with HIV if they get exposed to HIV by about 96%.
0: Wow, that's significant.
1: It is significant. So we really have two really great tools. Taking your medication will make it so you can't transmit HIV sexually. And taking a medication to prevent HIV can very likely prevent you from ever getting an HIV infection. If you should put yourself at risk to uh, two very important pieces of of uh, science that are, that are impacting HIV and, and AIDS and what we can do to prevent the spread of this disease.
0: Oh, good. i I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad we added that uh, to the conversation. You bet. Uh, and again, I'll recommend on my black spot, uh, your website, SamaritanCentral.org and the resources that you have there. Uh, So thank you again for being with me today, Wayne. Uh, Thank you very very much, All right. Have a great day. And uh, you as well. You're listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about The Worship Project by going to the website, theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a non organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing gospel Dot b dot .net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak